Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Hello and welcome to Perp Web 27. I almost got all of our work done. I am your humble host, Joe Basha, and I want to welcome all of you here to day one. We have three days of PerfWeb 27, and we've got a great show, I think, for you today. I'm really excited about it. So let me introduce, let's go over the social media first. That's right. So obligatorily, we, ha- we are streaming to Facebook. We are streaming to the Twitter, to YouTube. We have the LinkedIn now new, so you can go to any of the, where's the LinkedIn uh, logo? I haven't seen it. Oh, it is. Oh, okay. You got to make sure that we you 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 share you like us on Facebook, right? Share us on the Twitter. Make sure that you subscribe to the YouTube, and then there it is. And then also do the new link in. So there it is, right there. So I don't know. Do we have the like? How do they find that stuff? Oh, you go to perfusioneducation.com and you click on the social media icon that you want and there you go. We also have the call-in number if you want to call and discuss anything today. There's the telephone number. The phone sits right here. You can be live on the air and would love to hear from you, get your opinion, get your questions. If you're looking on Facebook, now look, I can only monitor one thing at a time, so I monitor the YouTube channel, but if you are on Facebook or you're on the Twitter, or LinkedIn or whatever it is you're on, keep that number, call. It's always easier for us, although you can do the chat, but I'm only monitoring the YouTube. I can't monitor all three of them myself, and we just don't have enough staff yet to do it. So I guess we all need computers, and then we all just pick one and it will go from there. So I've got a great faculty with us today, immediately to my right here, is of course Tammy Sparacino. You've all met her before. Hello, Tammy. Hi. And she's a THI grad from 2003, has done her work here in the local Houston area um, at a couple of, just a couple of hospitals, THI, of course, <laughs> Mem City, Memorial City. Mm-hmm. Where else? What other hospitals were you at? Besides VA, now you're VA, Ben Tob, the Trauma Center of the South. MD Anderson. MD Anderson. That's the, like, Ben Tob is like the charity hospital of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, MD Anderson, so quite a few. It's a, quite a breadth of experience. And then, of course, we have right next to her, you've all met uh, Katie Kim before. Mm-hmm. Katie graduated from the Medical University of South Carolina, where received her received her BSN in 2007. And then she received her master's in nursing in 2018 from Grand Canyon University. She's previously been with uh, CHI St. Luke's uh, Hospitals. And she is currently the director of education for our MediWeb and Guardia uh, ECMO, Nurse ECMO Specialist Training and for HET and a variety of other companies. Mm-hmm. So she's got a whole bunch of different things. But welcome, Katie. Nice to Thank see you, you again. Thank you. And then next to her is Mike Brown. Mike is a 1982 graduate of the Texas Heart Institute. And uh, he uh, has spent your career also here in Houston, working at uh, a lot of the same hospitals as Tammy. You've been down to Ben Taub. I think you also went to Texas Children's. Mm-hmm. You've mm-hmm. been in uh, the Woodlands, a lot of that area, right. the Spring, Cypress, and the community hospitals, but level two trauma center places. So you've seen, you've got a lot of experience there with you too. And uh, welcome back. You've been with our program a couple of times. It's Good great to, to see you again. And of course, then there was Patrick. 
And here comes Patrick. Patrick, do the come on, Patrick, do a little dance for us. Okay. Traffic issues. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then there's Patrick, and uh, he's a 1996 graduate from Rush, and he spent uh, about 12, 14 years in perfusion, then got out, was in the industry for a short period of time, and has recently come back to perfusion. Been back in for about four or five years now, maybe, maybe even six. I don't know how long exactly. Five. And uh, has done an outstanding job, really big, very, uh, very big on ECMO. And in fact, my talk, I think you're going to really enjoy today because I talk about that. And then coming in via Skype, we have uh, Roger DeLong. And Roger graduated from Barry University in 1991. He practiced until 2012. In fact, a lot of us know Roger DeLong. You know, Roger's fairly well known in our industry. Uh, but then he went to industry and uh, did some work with a company, Transonic for a number of years and now is coming back to clinical practice, but spent the last, you know, six years or so um, as a clinical consultant as opposed to a clinical practitioner. So he's still been very much involved. And this first talk that he's gonna give, I've actually heard this talk before. How this whole thing happened was, I was sitting at, we were at THI, you were there with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were watching from Texas Heart. It was during the Cooley lectures, I guess, mm -hmm. or the uh, for the students and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, this guy, you know, Roger gets up there. And of course, we, you know Roger too. You've yeah. met him before. So uh, I was like, oh, I wonder what he's going to talk about. And he gives this talk, and I was like, I have got to have this guy come down here and give this talk. Mm -hmm. So welcome to everyone here and the in the studio with me, Roger. Thank you so much for coming to us via Skype. I'm not exactly sure where you are, but uh, you know, please feel free. The floor is yours, and your presentation is loaded up. Just let us know when you're ready to go. Well, ready to go now. And welcome to all of you out there at WebWorld who are watching. So thank you very much. Hey, Joe. Thank you for all the kind words. It's uh, very nice to be here. All right. Can you see the screen? Yes, but you're a little, your voice is a little bit crackly. All righty. Um, in my recent experience as a clinical specialist, I had the pleasure of being in a, a lot of ICU units and looking at a lot of ECMO difficulties they were having. And I was kind of surprised to see how variable some of their uh, assessments were. Um, some were impressively aggressive, some uh, lesser so. Uh, but it, it, the bare question we get down to is uh, the amount of clot in an oxygenator has uh, traditionally just been impossible to determine. And I thought I'd go over a few of the things that we use currently that uh, help us to find out just how much there is. Uh, next slide. Joe, I think uh, he has control of the slides, right? Yes, yeah, it just takes a second for you to see it. All right. You have it? Um, I'm not seeing what you're seeing on the screen. Ah, what's going on, guys? Hold on. Time out, everybody. Oh, he exited out of it. Oh, oh, let me call him. Oh, here. Oh, okay. We'll call him. <laughs> that was for a special event. Not a lifetime. There we go. Hey, Roger. Welcome back. All right. Sorry about that. That's okay. 
I think uh, there may be some reason you should be able to see the slides because they're up now. All right. I'll do my best with what I can see. It's kind of small. Um, well, wait. David can help you make them big. I got it. That's okay. All righty. Um, let's start back at the beginning, uh, going through some of the coagulation difficulties. Uh, in perfusion school, we learned all about the different uh, – the, about the coagulation tree, intrinsic, extrinsic, common, uh, all the elements within. Uh, next slide. And with that, all the anticoagulants and how they involve the different levels, the different steps. Uh, next slide. And on to the, the propagation phases, et cetera, et cetera. We learned all about the cascade, um, but we weren't given many tools on evaluating how much we've gotten. Go ahead, next slide. Um, everyone measures the different amounts of uh, more or less of the different uh, blood gases. Everyone's using ACTs and PT, PTTs, largely replaced with APTTs. Some use the, uh, the anti-factor 10 thromboelastographs, rotational thromboelastometry. Both of those are still kind of hotly debated in some places. Uh, the AT3 levels, uh, fibrinogen with how many strands of fibers we're getting. Uh, the D-dimer showing how many strand pieces are breaking up. All of them can be useful in their own way to show the propensity and the, uh, uh, the degree, but none of them have any clue as to the volumes we've got within the, within the circuit, within the oxygenator. Next slide. All right, so what are the problems we're facing on ECMO? Well, let's start with the basic anticoagulation we all understand. The CPB is not handled the same as ECMO. Next slide. In the early 60s, we determined the uh, heparin dose response curve, and you can see the ACT here versus the percent of effectiveness at the different levels of heparin. Next slide. At a level of about 300, we'll effectively anticoagulate about uh, well over 90% of the population. Uh, the Safety factors were added to that of 33 and 60 percent. Next slide. And showing here the uh, at 60 percent over top of the uh, the other number, that's where the common number of 480 comes from. It's nothing more scientific than that. Next slide. But in the world of ECMO, uh, similar to the cath lab, we're dealing with ACTs of 180 to 200. Um, the cath lab, you get away with it. You've got a wire. It's in place for an hour. But on ECMO, you're in there for weeks, if not months. So we're virtually assuring that there's going to be clot constantly growing within all of the patients. Next slide. All right. Um, the rates vary. There's no consistency. I've seen oxygenators get changed out within three days. I've heard of them getting changed out within one. Um, some people go a month or more without any change outs at all. So there's real no good determinable uh, rate that we can even predict that they're going to clot. Next. All right. Uh, additionally, you can only see clot within a few millimeters of the plastic, and even then only if it's a different color. Um, there, there's, you can't tell if there's any inside the fibers. And you can't even really see even large ones if they're under the plastic and the color is the same. Next. 
So there's really no reliable assay available that we can say, okay, that's enough clot. Um, we need to do something. So with all that in mind, next slide. The question is, how do we know when an oxygenator should be changed out? And that's a big problem. Uh, like I said, I've seen a lot of places that um, don't use nearly all the tools that are available, um, but they all seem to do a pretty good job or not. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, next. So let's briefly go over all the things that I know of today uh, that we could possibly use and are being used to determine what amount of clot you're getting in the oxygenator. Uh, I'm not addressing the circuit specifically because clot traditionally isn't found in the circuit, possibly around the rims of some uh, uh, of the fittings, the connectors, but the clots are generally the largest amount is where the flow is slowest and there's a lot of surface area to grab onto and that's going to be in the fibers of the oxygenator. Um, the first thing we use, and it's a lot of fun, uh, you darken the room and you get on your knees and you hunt around with an oblique light uh, with a flashlight. Uh, next slide. Really sharp-eyed people get down in there close and they can try and see if there's any clots, anything moving, anything holding still. Um, next slide. In this one, there's a tiny little amount. There's five different flecks that you can barely see. Okay, I see the flecks. Now what do I do with that information? Um, not very quantitative. Next. All right. Um, coagulation testing, we've already discussed. You have the whole, uh, the whole realm of testing that can be done. Uh, next slide. These are the, the same list that we showed before. They're all valuable in their own way. Um, used at different times by different intensivists, preferred at different institutions. Um, but again, none of them relate to the volume that's lying within the oxygenator. Next. Pressure differential. By that, I'm talking about the pressure pre and post oxygenator. Universally, if you only do one test, this is the one. Um, the idea of this is as clot grows, resistance grows, and the pressure will grow. And if the pressure grows enough, you change out the oxygenator. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence kind of condemning this process. Uh, next. Uh, next. All right, here's a, an oxygenator that was rinsed out and it had a nice layer of soft clot. Um, the oxygenators will be talking to uh, some apologies to McKay. Generally, they produce some, some pretty good equipment, um, but well over 95% of all the ECMO units are using the Quadrox, one of the models of Quadrox. So we'll be discussing this one primarily, but the, the problems I'm discussing also are pertinent with cylindrical oxygenators. But let's have fun with the Quadrox here. Here's a nice soft cloth that's growing universally across the face. And that's the assumption that is generally made. They say, well, if the clot grows uniformly across the face, the pressure will rise in a linear fashion, and I'll get a pretty predictable number with high reliability of how much clot I have. Next picture. This is a little more common. This is a lot more common. The quadrox has corners. Any engineer that decided to put corners on a hydrodynamic system, in this case hemodynamic system, 
must have been banging his fist on the table saying, guys, we can't do that. At least I hope they did because there's no rationale for corners. And this would be a good reason why. The flow is inevitably going to be slower in the corners. And this is a pretty typical shot where you've got some well-developed clock in the corners. And it, it varies throughout the face. Um, next slide. You can also see a small portion here with fairly wide open fibers. These act much like a leak in any system and the pressures will be deceptively lower. They won't rise if you even have a small field of open fibers. Next one. All right, here you have something that looked very nice on the upstream side, but somewhere inside there's a large amount of clots that were growing through the fibers and you can see the, the mature nodules, if you will, that were growing until the flow had enough surface area to, block, to knock it off and then onto the patient it goes. Also with this, you can notice a lot of wide open fiber fields. There's no upstream indicator pressure-wise that this would be a problem. Next one. This is a nightmare situation. You've got a huge amount of mature clot like the last one, this is the downstream side of the oxygenator. Wide open fields of nice fresh fibers. There's no upstream indication that there's any problem. Downstream, you've got a mountain of clot that's growing and breaking and sloughing off. And the uh, case report that came with this, I was told that the baby died in a little over a week from a, a stroke on VA ECMO. Next picture. All right, this is kind of easy to understand if you uh, look at the basic pressure flow curves that we've seen. Um, the read curve shows the amount of increasing uh, blockage across the bottom from zero to 100, and yet the red line will show you that the flow will remain fine up to about 70, 75%, and that's not coincidentally why cath labs don't refer lesions for surgery until they're about that high, because you can sustain 100% flow through lesions that large. Next picture. So you got a lot of a drop in that later period, and this is inversely, the, the flow is inversely proportional to pressure. So you would have a, a mirror image steep incline only as a late sign in the oxygenator. It's completely dead. Good. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're back on face block. Okay, good. <laughs> You're getting as bad as me. All right, that, but are we on the tweeter? Okay, don't forget, turn your camera back on, Roger. Everybody laughs at me when I call it the tweeter. They keep trying to convince me it's Twitter, but that would mean that you send Twitters. You'd send tweets. You don't send twits. Oh, jeez. Right? Doesn't that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah, it's not correct. It doesn't matter. It's correct <laughs> it to me. Makes sense. Hey, we're correct. back up. Okay. <laughs> no, not yet. We're not quite yet. Not quite there. We have to go. Now we have to go live. Yes, we are live. We're live. Okay. Welcome back, everyone. And please forgive us. We had just a minor technical difficulty, but it's all been fixed by the expert broadcasting crew over there. So we're good now. Roger, please forgive us for the interruption. Continue. Uh, I've got a glitch at my end now. No, I don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you guys are like a still shot. I'm not getting that. Oh, we see you. You're perfect, and we see your slides. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the slide where the loops are 
Yeah, if you back up one, that'd be better. Um, I don't have a live shot of you. I just get a still shot. I don't know how to fix that. Yeah, that's okay. Don't worry about that. Well, I need it before I can see oh. the slides. Oh, you need us. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't yeah. know you could, you could see the slides. Uh, all right, nothing is working here. Um, I'm going to hang up and call. Can you call back on Skype? Okay. How you been, Mike? I haven't seen you for a while. I'm right there. I'm getting close. <laughs> What? But it wasn't the first. <laughs> I like to hear about that. Not while on the internet. Yeah. I think we're live. We're still live. What's up? What's happening? Da 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 da. I mean, just call him on his phone and tell him. I'm just. Can you just talk to him and just tell him what to do? Oh, really? Are we online? Tomorrow, the last day. Oh, okay. We'll go to a wide shot of us. Hey, everybody. Okay, so we're we're just having some technical difficulties, and uh, you know, it's part of this process. I wish it was easier, um, and I wish these things didn't happen, but they do. But we're here where we are. So let's see. I guess uh, what can we do, Patrick? Tell us about your case today. What'd you do? Uh, it was a pretty straightforward case. It was, uh, but you know, three vessel bypass with uh, Mark Matoyer, who we work with all the time, and it was easy. Mm -hmm. It was a good day. But then there was several other uh, emergencies around town, and so what happened is during the second, I had to do part of the second case, which was fine. You know, not what I expected, but it was yeah. fun to help out in a tough situation. Good. Excellent. Yeah. Hey, how did your case go the other day, that high-risk case in the cath lab where they were doing uh, yeah, ECMO back. standby? Actually, oh, we're back? Oh, okay. <laughs> I got you. Sorry about that. That's it. Listen, don't worry about it. It's okay. All right. Um, you want to back up one slide, and then we'll uh, go forward? Okay. Okay, yeah, the next one. Forward. All right. Um, we'll start from there, Joe. All right. That sounds perfect. Um, we're ready. Okay. Um, across the bottom, you can see the percent of occlusion. Uh, this would be true whether it's a vessel, um, uh, uh, an oxygenator, anything. Uh, a garden hose, it doesn't matter. The red line shows the performance of flow as the occlusion increases. And you only have a steep falling off once you get up around the 75-80% range. Uh, next picture. This, this late end would also be inversely proportional to the to the occlusion you would see the pressure you would see upstream from the oxygenator so by the time you do see an upstream pressure rise often you've got way too much clot to handle uh, the first time i was made to realize this by washing out oxygenators and looking at them uh, i was pretty taken aback so my reaction was kind of the same as a lot of perfusionists when they see this. Mm -hmm. Next mm -hmm. picture. Well, this got my attention. <laughs> yeah, it's about right. Mm -hmm. Next picture. All right. So, 
The uh, fourth method here is dilution measurement. Next picture. It's a, it's a device that uh, I was familiar with. It has an arterial and venous sensor. Same flow sensors that are on the majority of heart-lung machines around the country. The difference with this is a regular sensor can measure instantaneous flow. This monitor totalizes. It'll take a time run and give you the amount of volume between point, you know, time A and point time B. Next picture. All right, and uh, here's the injection port, and it's just a room temperature saline upstream, and the arterial sensor just downstream from the oxygenator. Oh, thank you. Right? Next picture. Well, not next picture. Make it run. Here you can see the injection of saline. It moves through. Now the sensor s senses the increase of speed, and that's time zero. The saline bolus moves through the oxygenator through the line, and as soon as it crosses into the arterial sensor, then it takes the mean of that. So it knows the time between those two points, and it knows the total flow between those two points. Therefore, between the syringe and the sensor, it knows that volume. And as time goes on and clot grows, volume decreases. It's kind of a low-tech solution, but it's a really good application. Of interest here, uh, also, since there's a venous sensor, it can also track, if you're on VV ECMO, say you've got a, a, the saline bolus moves into the patient, whatever percent of that bolus comes immediately out of the patient would also be recorded, and you can figure out the recirculation mm -hmm. from that immediately and accurately. Um, any of you have had intensivists scratching their heads desperately trying to decide if they got to return a patient to an, I, to an OR or let them be or move the cannulas again, um, can realize this is a, it's a very frustrating situation. Um, same device, uh, just two different uses of it. Next picture. Uh, the, oh, okay, next. All right, the first spike is the, uh, the bolus, the increase of speed, that's time zero. Next. And then the waveform, that's the saline bolus as it passes through the sensor. All right, next shot. All right, and then you can read directly the oxygenator volume, both percentage and total cc's. So pretty useful, usable bedside. You can move it to different patients. It's, uh, there's no other way to get a direct measurement. Next picture. Uh, it's, one problem with it is it's only a snapshot. Each time you make an injection, it takes one point, uh, but it will trend over time. Here you can see in time, I think it's in the... 80-hour range, the oxygenator was uh, failing, and they replaced it, and that brought it up to baseline. Next shot. All right. The next one is uh, one I accidentally stumbled across. This is uh, measuring the CO2 output in an oxygenator. Go ahead. There's a Dr. Kessler from Aachen, Germany, wanted to do a study where he correlated how much clot in an oxygenator would correlate with some other factors, the, the pre and post pressures being one, and also some CO2. Um, this is a new, new paper, January this year. Next slide. What he did was he took several quadroxes, he drilled little holes in the corner where clot is most likely, and he filled it up with varying amounts of uh, silicone, uh, I think 30, 40, 50, 65, and 85 cc's. And in the bottom, then what he did is he took a, a CT scan of each one. 
Now, silicones, uh, it's more cohesive and adhesive than a blood clot. Blood clot would have more of a, uh, a diffuse, uh, more uh, with more tentacles, fiber, shapes, etc. However, the point would be um, this in a single lump form, you can see pretty readily that uh, some of these percentages can show a lot of clot within the fibers and not even be visible. If we took just the fourth one, the 65cc one, and looked at that, next slide. 65 cc's is 30% of 215 cc, so 30% of this oxygenator is full of clot. Um, assuming there's blood going through, you would see from the face how little is visible, if at all, in the lower corner. On cross-section, you can see most of the clots inside the oxygenator, so that wouldn't be visible at all downstream and however small amount upstream. Next. <clears throat> These are the curves, the results. The upper curve is 5 liters per minute flow. Middle curve is 2.5 liters. And the lower curve is half a liter, more of a typical pediatric flow. If we look at the 65 cc point, go ahead, we can see that the curves are all pretty well flat right up to that point. At 5 liters of flow, you will start to see it. After the oxygenator is a third full, you will start to see some damming and some upstream pressures jumping. Uh, middle flow a little bit. Troubling to the pediatric perfusionist here, if you're running 500 cc's in this case, even beyond that to the 85 and beyond, you're not going to see a rise in pressure upstream. So the late sign won't occur until significantly later. Next. And next. One curve that he did have on this paper, for some reason, he doesn't really explain why, he put a CO2 monitor on the gas output of the oxygenator. Um, I had a discussion with Joe earlier about this. The, the one remarkable thing is all three flow rates, they're all fairly linear. They don't vary very much. There's a little hump in the middle. Um, but for single tests like he did, he came up with some pretty linear numbers. Counterintuitive is CO2 drops. Joe and I had a discussion about this and shared the idea that Sure enough, the CO2 would climb within the patient, but very likely would drop on the exit ramp on the, uh, the oxygenator. The point being, if you could monitor the CO2 output on an oxygenator, and any respiratory therapist can grab you a, 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 a simple, cheap monitor to be able to do that, uh, that may be a usable method to measure the clot. You'd have to determine, you'd have to parallel it with something effective uh, bench tests, etc. But once you had those numbers in hand, this might become an effective thing. So if you have any perfusion students or fellows that are looking for good things to do a study on, this might be a good, in, good and expensive one to do. Next. All right, the last one is a, a transcranial Doppler. Uh, next. I went to Johns Hopkins. They have a very talented neuroscience guy, a stroke guy who's got, I think he's 26, 28 papers he's done, two years of a fellowship at Cleveland Clinic, and he's been at Hopkins about two and a half years, uh, Dr. Cho. This paper, actually more of a case study, came out in January of this year. He's been looking at strokes for all different types of, uh, of uh, invasive procedures. Recently, he's done papers on TAVRs and VADs with a positive correlation with an increase of microembolic symbols, signals with uh, 
the uh, with the increasing duration of the ECMO of the the procedures. In this case, they had a, a heart transplant patient who wasn't doing well. They put him on ECMO. Uh, next slide. And he uh, the upper screen is from the measurement he did the night uh, that they were having trouble. The next day, they replaced the oxygenator, and that was the second test he got. So clearly, that's what you would expect. So anything outside of that, uh, certainly not a welcome thing in your brain. We tend to deal a lot with just tubings and circuits and pressures and flows, um, but we don't directly address, other than the nears, which some people call a random number generator, we don't really look at functions perfusion-wise in the brain. That's true. Uh, I thought this is a pretty smart thing to be able to do because, after all, it's what we're trying to do the most is protect not just the patient's organs, but most importantly, the brain. Uh, and this reading is taken right off the middle cerebral artery, so he's getting quite accurate information that something's going on there. So are we doing the right thing by anticoagulating patients um, or trading possible cerebral hemorrhaging for known cerebral microemboli? Is our tipping point at 180 to 200 seconds a good one? Um, the jury's still out, but studies like this will go a long way to uh, making some headway for it. Uh, next slide. So those are all the tests kind of rounded up, the flashlight test, uh, a lot of fun to do, but not much use. The coagulation, well, that's going to continue to be used because it does give a lot of indicators for other things, but not so much for clotting. Uh, the pressure differential, uh, so a lot Putting the Grigri on me. I think she's, uh, she might be mad because I was upset because... Somewhere hitting her, damn it, doll. Facebook is live. Hi, everybody on Facebook. We're, we're having, again, technical difficulties. I'd like to blame it on weather but I can't. I'd like to blame it on, uh, I'm just so good looking that the machine can't handle it, but I, I guess I can't really do that either. We can blame it on Patrick, because he was late. That's always suitable. Somebody's gotta take the fall, dude. I like your yellow tie, it's very pretty. Do you know what this is? I can't see from it's, here. It's uh, termite season, and termite. you being from the area that you live. Yeah, we have a lot of termites in Louisiana. They fly out in the summer this time of year, yeah. and, and then they, mm -hmm. uh, if they land in water and near wood, I guess they make a new queen. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. Anyway, I've got a story behind that. You want to hear it? Sure. We're just wasting sure. time. Sure. All right. So when I lived in New Orleans, and oh, by the way, they told us when we moved into the neighborhood, they said that day when this all happens, when the humidity is perfect and the, you know, the, the temperature is right and these things start swarming out, turn off every light in your house, even your clock radio. Don't even have a clock on. Like, it's got to be dark because these things are so attracted to light, they're going to come into your house. It's going to be terrible. So just do that. So the night that that happened, we did that, and then I was going for a walk, and there was a tourist who was wearing these beads that were flashing and they yeah. were lighting, and, <laughs> and these moths were like, <laughs> these, these termites were like all over this person. They're going, what is with these moths? <laughs> and I decided, you know, I'll just let them go ahead and deal with that. So, <laughs> that was I didn't mean, tell dude. them, turn the lights off. <laughs> that was not nice, okay? You know, sometimes the tourists in mm -hmm. New Orleans aren't so aren't Come on. <laughs> you were a tourist once. Uh, yeah, once, and then okay. I lived there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you were at least a tourist for a while. Yeah. You know, when you first lived there, first moved there. Yeah. So how are we looking? We, we are. We're live again? We're back up? Oh, okay. everybody heard that story? Uh -oh. Hey, so now we, now we got to get his slides up. And uh, we're... I think uh, he's just on the last slide. I know, I know. Yeah. 
and uh, let's try to just hope we get through it now. And <clears throat> maybe don't go to LinkedIn. I still think you ought to try not to. <laughs> and this could be the tweeter. This, I think this is a conspiracy. You're going to blame it on the tweeter? Yeah, I think this is a conspiracy. This is all the Donald Trump. I think, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, I think, no, I think this is the, uh, I think this is, uh, Perfusion.com is sabotaging us somehow. They're, they're, I think they're hacking in. Have you gotten, uh, have you got, oh, cooling the room down more? Maybe. Yeah. We're up. Can We're up, okay. All right, Roger, go ahead. We have, we have, uh, we not, we need to call that Michael Chen guy that has uh, the uh, cyber war. I think that's what's wrong. The Chinese have hacked us. Oh no. All right. Well, to summarize, uh, we already talked about the flashlight test and how much fun that is. And uh, coagulate, coagulation testing, which will continue, um, neither of which are very quantitative. Uh, the pre pressure differential, I'm sure, will continue to be used and trusted by most people, but it's uh, horribly misleading. Uh, I would advise anybody doing this to start cutting the oxygenator out of the circuit after they, before they trash it and rinse it out. I think you'd be pretty surprised at the variability of patterns. Uh, it's, it's incredible when you first see the first view. Uh, fourth, a dilution measurement. Uh, it's, it's accurate. It's effective. Uh, it's a snapshot. You need to run it as a trend every 4, 8, 12, however many hours, but it is useful. Uh, the oxygenator CO2 output, well, the jury's still out on that. It will require a good study or two, but that might be something within arm's reach that uh, would also be useful to anybody. And the transcranial Doppler, I'm excited about that. He, uh, the Hopkins is paying full attention. They've got a full-blown study going on that now. So that's a, I expect that to turn into a pretty interesting research paper uh, within the next year or so. And that's pretty much all we have. Next slide. If any questions you have, I'd be glad to entertain them. Those are that. Listen, that was. I'm going to give you applause on that yeah, because okay. despite all of the technical difficulties, and I know that was challenging. Can we see him as well on the screen? Or yeah, there he goes. Um, uh, uh, the uh, it's just, I just thought it was a great talk and I feel bad, frankly, that it, it, it had those issues because it is a great talk mm -hmm. and uh, we feel like you didn't, didn't do you good justice there. And probably the best thing to do is to invite really? you back yeah. and have you come to the studio <laughs> and do it from here. We seem to have fewer complications when we do that. We seem mm -hmm. to always, it always seems to have a problem when we're doing these, even though we think we have all the technology in the world. but. Be that as it may, I have a bunch of questions, but I'm going to defer over to Tammy because she was writing uh, uh, prolifically over here. So let's go with some of your questions. If anybody's got a call, call, the phone's open. So if somebody wants to call in, we'll go ahead and put the phone lines up and uh, we'll let them call in and I can answer the call. Be patient, though, because I might have to put you on hold till we're ready to talk to you. So go ahead. Okay, so I have a couple questions. First off, I'm really interested in this dilution measurement. Um, have you had an opportunity to use that type of thing, or is it just something that you've read about? Well, um, until recently, I was uh, uh, working with that at Transonic. Okay. So I've seen it bench tested. Um, it's, it's really accurate. It's a good device. Um, is that its it, main purpose? That's why it was created? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, there's a research scientist there that's uh, that's taken the 
the flow measurement sensors and move them one generation farther into um, being able to totalize the volume. The interesting thing is the uh, we have dilution theory before from things like Swan-Gans catheters, um, but dilution isn't very good. It's not thorough, and even though a thermistor reacts quickly, it the transit time through the lungs is 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 too fast. So that's why Swan-Gans catheters um, can kind of give dilution a bad name. They can be 20, 30, 40 percent inaccurate, and physicians know this. But it's what they've used, it's what they know, it's what they have. Uh, the dilution this uses, uh, the fluid mixes very quickly, and saline is a largely different wavelength than blood, so it, it reads it pretty accurately. Mm -hmm. I think that's really promising technology, and it seems like it's smaller type device that really could be used for a, a great safety for ECMO. There's not a lot of safety devices that really provide useful information. Yeah, our, 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 uh, our air sensors aren't going to pick it up. Right. You can have an air sensor on there and, you know, that, that, that's only going to protect you from air. Mm -hmm. You know, so, Roger, I, I, I like that you talked about that. You mind if I add, add to the question? Please. And uh, my interest in it is more in the recirculation problem with the cannula. That's... And, I, and I, you, you kind of went over it, but can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, I've got a similar but separate talk on uh, completely on the recirculation aspect. There's uh, been some good papers showing just minor adjustments with most places are using Avalon or Origin catheters. It's a two-in-one, mm -hmm. yeah. dual lumen. Or the Crescent or now. Or the Crescent. Yeah. The Crescent's mm -hmm. new. Um, th they actually used the, the, this device to bench test it in uh, oh. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, but the crescent is longer, and they, they brag about it not being any recirculation, but that's because it's, it's like inches different from the, the, the ports, and they feed it up through the valve. And the problem I see with those is it causes a lot of abrasion on the valve. Yeah, it's going right through into the pulmonary artery. No, that's the, that's the, no, that's, you're talking about the tan, that's the, that's the tandem heart. That's the Protect Duo. The Crescent is basically the same as the Avalon. It's just so I guess their patent must have run out. I don't know, but it 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 it's a dual lumen that goes into the IVC, so it goes through the IJ. Or you could, some people are putting it in the left subclavian and and putting it all the way down that way. So it's not the one that goes into the pulmonary artery. Oh, okay. There is there's a new one by Med, Medtronic's carrying it for MC3 labs. That's Bob Bartlett's group. Um, that's the one I thought you meant. Um, the only two that I've seen are the Origin and the Avalon. And the problem with them, if you ever get them in your hands, uh, the places, most places use it, even though it's more expensive, they're several hundred dollars. Um, but the average pediatric ECMO case runs over $300,000. So yeah. there's a lot more money available to those groups than there are in a, you know, cardiac surgery. They got to beg and borrow f for the least little thing. Um, because the money has drifted over to the cath labs. But in ECMO, they generally can get more that they need. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with those dual lumen catheters is the if you ever get them in your hand, the proximal and the distal ports are millimeters apart. Mm -hmm. hmm. And if you don't place it perfectly, um, you know, there's six sizes of the Avalon, seven of the origin, or vice versa. There's a million sizes of patients. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And if the anatomy isn't just right, or they put it a little too far, a little too close, 
um, they, there's a lot of trouble with it spinning around in the atrium until it goes back into the uh, the point of least resistance is the distal ports where it's going to suck it all back into the the circuit without the the body being able to use it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how does so? I mean, do you have that talk now? Um, I'd almost rather you gave that talk than me give mine. But I mean, but but I'll give mine if you if, and and but you got to promise you're going to give that talk because I have a real interest in this. Mm -hmm. If, if you want to, I'd be glad to. Sure. I'd love for you to. No, seriously. If you want to give it now, you can give it now. No, I don't have it uh, on the computer right now. Okay, all right. But, I mean, that'd be fine with us. So, but but that's where my real interest lies. How, yeah. you know, one, I noticed you said that um, uh, uh, the uh, percent of occlusion, you know, for measuring pressures, because I'm, I'm not an advocate of measuring pressures. I'm not an advocate of having a uh, manifold. I'm not an advocate of any of that stuff. But... For different reasons this is yet now another reason why i feel i don't want those things but how what percentage like what's the most sensitive uh or what's the sensitivity rather i guess of using the transonic device for measuring the um the uh, clot burden in other words what when do you start seeing really a difference uh, from bench testing, they can put precise amounts of, of, of solids into an oxygenator and compare it. Um, the advertised accuracy is within 10%, but it's, that's a very conservatively high percentage. It, it'll read a lot tighter than that. Really? So you yeah. feel pretty confident in the device. And, uh, of course, I'm really also fascinated with the end title CO2. Let me just ask you, do you think we should be using... TCD on all ECMO patients as a routine standard of care, um, con you know, continuously? It's, it's interesting you say that. Um, most of the Dopplers you see are only instantaneous. Like the one I showed you, um, that was just, a, I think, a 30-second reading. Um, they do have continuous ones. And, yeah, that would, I, I think that they, uh, Dr. Cho, whatever, his results come up to be, I think it's going to be a, a groundbreaking study. Yeah. Because we don't get to we don't get to see what's going through the brain. That's right. We don't really get to see what's going through the circuit. Well, it's uh, not just yeah, and it's not just the uh, it's not just the, the clot. It's the, right, but not right, but not also yes, but yeah. it's true. But I mean, we that's a big. It's a big deal, but it's not just the clot worrying about embolic events, but mm -hmm. flow. Mm -hmm. It validates yep. so much. Because if you're not perfusing the brain, What's it doesn't matter what else you're perfusing, right. I think. I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so I don't know. That's my feeling. Um, let's go on down. Questions, Miss Miss uh, Katie Kim? Yes. I was wondering, does it measure the volume that's moving through the oxygenator or measuring the volume of the clot itself? Uh, it's by deduction, you know, the clot. It's measuring when the saline goes in to when it leaves. So if you fill up some of that space, then it's not liquid anymore. Mm -hmm. So a 250 cc oxygenator, if there's 30 cc's of clot, well, then it's gonna go through that much faster. Okay, so it's measuring it, it's, speed. It's low tech, it, it, it'll, read the, 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 it, it'll read the volume directly. So just is it reading velocity? Is it just reading transit time i mean what is the actual what is it actually measuring it's measuring all the flow between time zero and when the the different 
wavelength fluid saline goes through the sensor. So you say all the flow, you mean the volume of fluid yes, that passed from- Yes, the saline bolus goes in and dilutes evenly pretty quickly. Certainly after filtering through an oxygenator, it's gonna be well filtered, but still in bolus form. Mm-hmm, okay. If you put it uh, farther down the tubing or whatever, you would have a wider, flatter curve, but it'll still pick up however many CCs are going through it. Gotcha, so gotcha. I have a follow-up to that. So the problems that you see with measuring pressure, I think your point was pretty, um, I don't know, pretty shocking. Uh, depending on where the clot is, that you could have no pressure changes at all. So do you have the same sort of concerns with depending on where the clot is, or it doesn't matter because any part of it that is um, uh, clotted is going to have the same typical effect on your saline bolus? Yeah, yeah, depending on the degree of how evenly it forms. If you remember the first one I had, it was the only one I saw like that. It's just a smooth, even pad, a soft clot, right. and the pressure climbed, and I thought, wow, that, that's very nice. That was about the only one I ever saw like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some of the more progressive units that I've talked to that are actually rinsing them out, um, it's more of an anomaly than normalcy. So mm -hmm. the nice precision linear rise is, is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But with the dilution measurement, you're going to have a response of that there's clot no matter how the clot is positioned, where it's even or it's in the corners or that's, that, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Is that correct? Oh. Yeah, good question. No, you're exactly right. It, the bolus filters through the fluid, and then uh, it doesn't matter what corners it hides in, it'll read the volume accurately. That's been, that's been consumed or yeah. that is no longer there. Right, not available. The liquid volume that's no longer there, right, available exactly. because of the clot. Exactly, okay. yeah. yeah. Okay. Now that makes okay. good sense to yeah. me, you know, and I think that's scary because it's on the arterial side. Yeah. And uh, we think, you know, it doesn't get there, but it clearly does. it does. Yeah. And I think those Some, pictures, those pictures were frightening that, to me. That was. Yeah, good yeah. pictures. That that was. Great I mean, they pictures. were frightening to me. Yeah. My yeah. questions? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's, we do a fair amount of uh, ECMO with our, our team here in Houston, uh, both uh, VA and VB. Uh, our indication for changing out the oxygenator is not so much based upon a clot. And let me just leave you with that thought for just a second. It's much more based upon whether or not we're getting uh, circuit gases that look decent enough to continue to provide support to the patient. And the longer it goes, this, the CO2 tends to build up. Is that what we're seeing is caught? Or are we, is, is that what we're seeing? And in essence, we are still basically changing out our oxidator because of the clot level or because somehow there's maybe a protein layer uh, laid down that is causing them to go down. We run our ACTs a little bit lower. We, run, we have one doc who uh, I think would run them without heparin if he could. And uh, but we run our ACTs 160 to 180. But I don't think within this panel that we've ever changed out an oxidator because we saw a visible clot. It's because of uh, CO2 retention in the patient. So is that what we're seeing, Roger? Well, you, you raise a good point. The, the acid test would always be if it's failing to oxygenate or equalize what you need the blood gases to be, yeah, it's not performing anymore. Um, but are we doing damage waiting for that ultimate late 
point to happen? Yeah. We don't know. And that's that. a really good question. But I think, I think to your point, if I can elaborate on that too, that's a really good point. Is by if we were to measure, even though I think this end tidal CO two is a great idea, and I think that that's what happens. It's inverse. Mm -hmm. The patient's CO two is climbing mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. our ability to remove the CO two right. has gone down. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's secondary, I think, to the obstruction or to the you know to the lack of surface area for ventilation, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's why we see that. Um, nevertheless. I think if you just use that methodology, then you still don't really know what the reason is. And I think the only way to differentially diagnose mm -hmm. it being clot versus being just some kind of some kind of lipid or protein layer that's uh, that's clogging the microporous portion of the oxygenator, if it's that versus clot, the only way to do that is the dilutional method. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I think would tell us. So right. if you had mm -hmm. a situation where you were seeing, you know, hypercapnia occurring in the patient and you can't get the CO2 cleared, and that would be to me the time, let's test this right now. Right. First, let's do an end tidal CO2, it's low. Mm -hmm. So I know there's something wrong. It's not that the patient's metabolically hypermetabolic and they're right. producing just too much CO2. Mm -hmm. And then the next step would be do this, and if there's a volume change that's significant, well, the, the, the lung is clotting. Right. That's the reason. If it's not, then it may be a different reason, but, and you may be able to tease through it, but that's the only way to absolutely say it is or it isn't a problem that is, you have a, 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 a reduction in surface area from something solid. Yeah. And the only thing I can think of that's gonna be solid in there, if it's because I don't think any of us are squirting silicone in it during the case. Look, I've done that, I haven't tried, I haven't done that in a while. Um, that's gotta be clocked. Right. right. Does that make sense, Roger? Do I? I mean, yeah. yeah I probably said it. I probably was rather long-winded, but I was thinking no, it through. That's right on. That's well, right on target. I think either yeah. way, you know, clot, clot probably doesn't transfer oxygen and CO two very well. Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't transfer it at all. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mean, if whether it's clot or or if it's a, uh, you know, like a, a platelet layer or a protein layer or a problem with our, our oxygen transfer, we're going to change the oxygenator either way. Yeah, but sometimes you, you, how many times have you teased through it and said, yeah, because hey, we're going to like, we'll get it, you yeah. turn the sweep yeah. up to right, 10 right. or 12 well, or whatever. And we just say, let's try to make it one more day. Right. Well, if you had done this test and found out that 80% of or 70% or 65% of your oxygenator was filled with clot, would you wait? No, no. Okay, because, exactly. Yeah, because you're thinking about what not what's in the oxygenator, but what made it through the oxygenator. Yes, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And that we don't know because we're not measuring TCD. Right. So I think once you get to 20% of clot burden, I think, or I don't know what that number is. Yeah. I just threw that number out there. I, I really don't know what the number would be, but in my mind, opinion, once you reach 20% of clot burden, you're trending a direction that is going to increase over time, your risk of thrombus embolus through your arterial circulation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At least that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Okay. That's, mm -hmm. So where do you live? Uh, near Syracuse. Okay, well, I mean, there are flights down here from there. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, they have, they're important everything. <laughs> yeah, so we're just going to have to get you back down here, I think, to uh, to give the talk the on the dilution, uh, because I really enjoyed this talk, despite all of the difficulties. I still think it was great, and um, you're 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 obviously, I mean, you really know this topic extremely well, and uh, we just want to hear more from you. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Sure. I've actually got another. Oh, you have another question, please. Yeah. Oh, and I'm so sorry. It's I not even really a question, you. but I think you know. You are you doing mostly pediatrics with your ECMO, or or is it adults as well? Well, the uh, I was the clinical specialist, so I was in whatever units wanted to invite me in. Okay. Uh, most of them are pediatric, but there's a lot of adult ECMO going on out there with the same problems. Okay. So yeah. there's something that we, you know, as our group here in Houston, when we're working, when we change out an oxygenator when we make that decision to do it, that the patient will survive that and that it's time to do that and you know we're going to be staying on long enough that we should go ahead and make that investment. Um, we see an immediate really, and Joe you've seen this a lot too, like a really big improvement quickly on the patient. And one thing that Joe and I have talked about is you've mentioned that you think that there's something in the oxygenator when you put a new one in that it's it's somehow absorbing the the absorbing uh, yes absorbing absorbing yeah, yeah. yeah. the the inflammatory the um, uh, the evil humors the either evil humors yeah. yeah so I mean would you do you see that or have you seen that much when when the oxygenator is changed out is this something that how much of it is just a new oxygenator and how much of it is the oxygenator actually acting as a kind of a filter almost mm -hmm. you know no, that, that's a good question uh, the the rule of thumb I'd always learned and saw was once you change out an oxygenator another reason you want to prolong that is because the subsequent change outs kind of fall by half so if the first one changes in a week or eight days you're going to need another change out in about four days you know rough rule of thumb not always true but that's another reason you want to prolong that um, I'll tell your point what I'm thinking is whatever's going on isn't just going on in the oxygenator it's going on in the patient so whatever chemistry is causing the oxygenator fail, that's only part of the circulation. As soon as you change out that little piece of it, then all the poisons are still in the building and are going to contaminate, if you will, whatever's the new oxygenator is going to get bit by the same bug. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that's a good point too. But I think I understand your 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 question. And let me if I can sort of add yeah, to it, and maybe. Yeah. Uh, this will get you thinking in the same direction, uh, Roger. So, you know, have you done much work or, uh, or reading on, uh, on, uh, pl uh, uh, on uh, plasma adsorption therapy or uh, hemopurification where they use those big plasma filters and they run it through like a charcoal media with various different charges on it to try to remove the protein-bound inflammatory mediators. Have you seen much of that, like the Mars system, molecular adsorption therapy stuff? No, I'm not firsthand familiar with that. No. Okay, so it's so basically, I think what what I think what we see is that we have a patient who's been on ECMO for five days. They look okay. You know, they might have been septic, or they 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 may still be septic, um, but they look okay. But they don't look great and the oxygenator is kind of starting to degrade and we just make the decision we're going to go ahead and change the oxygenator now so we change it and as soon as we do the patient just seems to look 
better, you know, after it takes a little bit of time, you know, maybe an hour or so of being on the new oxygenator, maybe two hours, and they kind of start to perk up a little bit. Now that doesn't last. They kind of just kind of eventually kind of go back. And um, there are filters out there that are made of various different materials. There's polysulfone and there's uh, 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 some kind of polypropylene. It's called M69, but I can't remember what it is. But there's all various different kinds that are designed to have inflammatory mediators adsorb or stick to them to remove them and you run these filters until they clog up not clot and then change them and you use that as your clearance of all these evil humors and an oxygenator has a whole lot more surface area than do these little filters i'm referring to so the hypothesis is that when we change the oxygenator we sort of clear a portion or enough of a portion of the circulating inflammatory mediators onto the oxygenator and that's why they look better, but then kind of trend back down to where they were over time. Is that kind of what we're saying? Sure, I'd forgotten about the other technology you were telling me about, but yes, yeah. that is definitely yeah. right on. So do you see, have you seen that in your practice? No, or no, your that's experience? Really interesting. Yeah. Hmm. No, okay, so you haven't seen it. Now, the other thing is, to the point, um, uh, and I understand your change outs a half and all that stuff, of course, I believe in changing the oxygenator and circuit and everything else at five days, whether it needs it or not. Um, but that's based more on what I recognize. And, and, and I, I may be onto something for the wrong reason. I'm not sure. But based on everything you told us today, I strongly suspect that changing the oxygenator, even one that has extended durability with the, the PMP fibers and stuff, probably should be changed because there's more clot burden in it than we ever really realized. Mm -hmm. um, whether it be, whether, but especially if it's a square oxygenator, but a rectangular oxygenator, I understand, or cylindrical rather, has the same potential in maybe fewer areas, but it still exists, is these dead spaces. These spaces of low velocity where you're gonna have clot develop. And so if you have a patient who's septic, and you get clot in the corners or you get clot in the various ridges of a cylindrical oxygenator, it's going to be infected clot that cannot be treated. So you're treating the patient with antibiotics and yet you have this ECMO circuit on day eight, day nine, day 10, day 11, day 12 that has this clot in it that's infected. So you never really clear the infection from the patient because you just keep giving it back to them. And so I believe like nurses change your IV lines every 48 hours or 72 hours. Well, if it's a central line, it's usually seven days. Every seven central line, seven days. Mm -hmm. So, but your normal IVs you change every 48 mm -hmm. hours. So, so split the difference and say five days, maybe we could say seven days. I feel like it just needs to be changed. I don't think you should leave a circuit with all of that potential for having stagnant, now coagulated blood in it for 20 days. I think to me that makes no sense. For the reasons of infection, not necessarily for the reasons of the clot, but now after this discussion and, and, and incredibly good, great lecture, I, I think that I'm onto something, but for a different reason, because based on what he's telling us, I think we have a whole lot more clot than we ever imagined. Mm -hmm. We just simply don't know. Mm -hmm.
yeah, it's a good idea from the standpoint of you know changing out a whole circuit. If if you've got a lot of inflammatory response mediators floating through, then the more of the circulating volume you replace, the less of it would be retained. Yes, that's true. That's mm -hmm. what I think. That's what I think anyway. Mm. So, so mm -hmm. does that scare you? Are you have you changed? Have you, are you reconsidering <laughs> whether you want to move down here or not based on all of that? <laughs> no, not at all. I like this stuff. All right. Well, come on down. Okay. You can do this all the time. All right. Anybody <laughs> else have any further questions, comments? Roger, would you like to make any final comment? If you want, if you want, because I've still got to give my talk. And we'll have an open discussion later. You're welcome to call in or re-Skype in if you want, or it's just in deference to your time. I thought we'd have this discussion now. We're sort of off, uh, off, uh, off schedule, but we had those other issues. So I don't want to keep you longer than you need to be kept. And uh, I just appreciate so much your generous time. But you're always welcome to listen in your car, call in, whatever you want on my next talk. Well, that's great. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you, too, Roger. Good talking to you. I'll give you a call back later on this evening, too, if it's okay. That's fine. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Thank you, Roger. Sarah. Thanks, Roger. Bye. Bye-bye. We made it through that one. Woo! <laughs> Lord have mercy. Okay. Well, we're still on? Yes. Oh, shoot. Okay. Oh. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> okay, everybody. All right. So, so let's go ahead and throw my slides up, and I'll just get right into it. Does anybody need a break? You just want to press on and get through this. Let's, Let's go. Let's press on and get through this. Okay. So, uh, let's go. Okay. So, my talk is actually on an algorithm for deciding what type of uh, ECMO we should, uh, what, what type of ECMO you should choose, VV, VA, or whatever iteration of it. So, let's go to my next slide. Oh, I here I have it. Never mind. I'll do it. Yeah, there you go. So here's the patient. Patient is a 26-year-old female. Now, Patrick, mm -hmm. you are barred from answering anything. Okay. So 26-year-old female, is 27 weeks gestation, <laughs> severe preeclampsia. The EF is 20% by intraoperative TEE. The SAO2 is 84% on maximum ventilatory support. The patient is in fulminating, fulminating pulmonary edema. There is a plan to do an emergency C-section and go on ECMO pretty much at the same time. How do you want to cannulate this patient and why? Tammy? Pass. No. Hard, hard <laughs> photo friend. Okay, Mike? VV. VV. Why would you choose VV with an EF of 20%? Uh, that's, uh, to me, that's due to other situations other that uh, going on ECMO and oxygenating the patient would help take care of. Mm -hmm. I think VV. That's I, your I, thought? Yeah, okay. that's my thought. Miss Kim? I'm thinking VA. I'm going to go against you. You want to go VA? Okay, going go against them. All right, why? Why would you choose VA? The heart failure. The heart failure. Okay, that's good. Bold. Miss Tammy? <laughs> I have to commit. You have to commit. <laughs> There's only two. You're, you're, you know. A or B? Yeah. No, you can go VVAA or VVVV. I'm, I'm not doing that. Okay, so you want VV or VA? I guess I'm going to lean for VV. Okay. Same for the thoughts. Same as reasons Mike. as Mike? Right. Okay, so when I first heard about this case, 
I was like, you're doing what? No, you need to go on VA. I was with you on this one. Mm -hmm. But, so what's the, is anybody out there want anybody call in? You could win a Perf Web Cup. <laughs> yep. We had one that was up here today that was pretty nasty, but I don't you know who's that one. one. Yeah, we did. That's from the last year. You get a clean one. Clean I didn't one. use it. It wasn't mine. It wasn't me. Okay. I think it was John. It looked like somebody spit in it. It looked it, like they, they were chewing tobacco. No, it looked no. like old coffee. Old coffee. Okay. It was, it was John. pretty nasty with the creamer in it. Okay, yeah. so the answer, the answer. Patrick, what's the answer? VV. VV. Why VV? And Mike hit this on the head. He's absolutely right. So this is a very important algorithm that everyone should have. You can get it from the Elsa Red Book. You can download it online, but you need to have this algorithm with you at all times, whether it be in your head or whether it be on a card. So if you look at the algorithm, if you have, re and we're all not worried about the right side, if you, uh, the right side of this thing, just if you have refractory hypoxemia, and a Murray, a Murray lung score of three to four, and you are in either cardiogenic shock or without cardiogenic shock, you have to follow the, the pathway. So let's say it is with cardiogenic shock because she was certainly in it. Then you go down the algorithm, all other heart failure. Well, she doesn't really have any reason to be in heart failure, but is the cardiogenic shock secondary to hypoxemia? And this is where the clinical decision at the time, when they told me they were gonna be initiating VV ECMO, I literally was like, no, don't do that, don't do that. Somebody say something, nobody said anything. And at the end of the day, you know, Patrick, Nate, mm -hmm. Dr. Matoyer, we're all 100% correct. Mm -hmm. So they put the patient on VV ECMO and the uh, patient did great, and uh, it all went well. And if you look at that algorithm, it's very simple. Hypoxemia, you either have shock or you don't have shock. If you don't, if you do, then is it due to some, uh, you have heart failure for another reason. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was no reason for this young 26-year-old to have heart failure. She didn't have history of it. Um, and so the determination was it was due to hypoxia and the patient was put, as you see on the arrow, on VV ECMO, and it was the appropriate thing to do. Um, in the case of all other heart failures, the other side of that is venoarterial or venoarterial venous ECMO. So you can either do VAV or v just straight VA, mm -hmm. and uh, would be appropriate. So VA for the circulatory support, VAV for the circulatory and pulmonary support. So you'd be com combining both. So. Just very quickly, VV, you know, it's so easy to do. I'll just very quickly going over these slides, not going to spend much time on it. So that's one methodology, double cannulation, one in the femoral vein, going up to the, inferior, the high inferior cava, one in the right IJ, going to the superior vena cava. You get a whole bunch of circulation through this, but it does work, you know, effectively if you have any lung capacity at all and i'll tell you this turning the flow up makes it worse turning the flow lower makes it a little bit better sometimes so you know when you don't get the result you want turning the flow up doesn't necessarily help it sometimes makes matters worse there's these techniques where you can see the cannulas are being put in at different lengths the access catheter and the return catheter are the same type of catheter one's put higher obviously the return taking advantage of the normal flow 
of the uh, venous circulation back to the heart, but you'll still suck some of that blood down. And then you can see there using the uh, typical method that I showed you earlier, the femoral jugular configuration. This is the Crescent. It's the competitor to the uh, Avalon catheter. And as you can see, it's a little bit longer and the holes are a little farther apart. So you get less recirculation, theoretically. Mm -hmm. We have used it and we have had, I think, good results with it thus far um, on the cases we have used. We used the St. Luke's on the cases there. I'm trying to remember which patient that was. It was this one. Oh, this, on this girl. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. We used it on this lady, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. So we had switched to the uh, Crescent over mm -hmm. there. We're trying to convert all of the all of the places to it, but we're slowly getting there because we had to use up our stock of the Avalons. Right. It is, as uh, as uh, Roger had mentioned, it is rather expensive. You know, I mean, uh, the the it's it's less expensive barely than the um, than the Avalon, and that's only because everything comes in it. Not you don't have to buy separate insertion kits. And Avalon is kind of weird. You buy the cannula. So you buy a 27 and a 31, that's going to wear adult, that's the sizes we're going to use. But you have to buy an uh, insertion kit of five. And so your insertion kits get used unevenly and you always end up with more insertion kits than you have of cannulas. It just that keeps growing as you're using them. And so it's problematic for us from a, from a, just from a, a, a business perspective. Uh, this comes all inclusive. It has the insertion kit and the cannula all together. So it's just a little more affordable, um, but it seems to be a really nice catheter. It works really well, and it has a real interesting shape to it, which makes insertion much easier than what you find with the Avalon catheter. Uh, they come in similar sizes mm -hmm. and uh, flow rates and all of that kind of thing, but a little lesser circulation because the, 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 it is a little longer and the holes are a little farther apart. Um, this is what he was talking about, which is the Tandem Heart Protect Duo, and this is actually designed for RV failure, but you can use it as a uh, VV ECMO to significantly reduce recirculation because it goes through the IJ and then you're drawing from the right atrium and the tip resides in the main trunk of the pulmonary artery. So you can see that you would have much less recirculation this way, but it's actually designed as an RV support device. Yeah that uh, just happens to have this other, you know, advantage. And so, uh, but his point was, it's kind of rough on the valves. It's a big catheter and it's not easy to put in uh, and it's very expensive. So the, 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 the Avalon and the Crescent are, you know, about 2,500 for each catheter. This catheter here is about 18,000. Um, so it's a very expensive catheter because they won't sell the catheter only. You have to buy the whole kit. Uh, which is the uh, pump piece of it and all that stuff. Uh, except in Canada, they do sell it separately, and in Canada, they sell it for between ten and eleven thousand for each catheter. So wow. they use it a lot for their ECMOs. There, uh, my buddy up in uh, New England—I mean, not in New England, in the Newfoundland—he uses them uh, regularly, and he really likes them. He says they work really well. Okay, so patient two. Now this is going to be a real tough one. But uh, this comes with a prize too. Patient two is a 19-year-old male. He's five foot ten. Recently traveled to the United States from Africa. He is. We were concerned. I was concerned about Ebola. Um, he was uh, unable to ventilate or oxygenate at all. 
He had very high peak pressures. I mean, his peak pressures on the lowest title volumes we could give this kid were, you know, bordering on 45. I mean, it was really, really, really bad. And uh, his, white, his white blood cell count was under 5,000. He was in septic shock, uh, multiple pressors for blood pressure. His LV, however, was just hyperdynamic. And uh, VA ECMO was done with two peripheral cannulas, femoral, femoral, both of which were, I'll add, undersized for this patient. Uh, I think it was a, uh, an 18 French uh, VFEM catheter and a 16 French Opti catheter in the uh, femoral artery for return. Flow was four liters with very high line. I mean, the, I, we didn't measure the line pressure, but the line was tight. The line pressures were high. The patient continued to do poorly, had severe refractory lactic acidosis. Arterial BP, however, was 120 over 90 on ECMO with continued max pressure support. The arterial PO2 was 300. The oxygenator was 350, but the pulse ox on, was not reading on multiple sites, neither hand, neither ear, nor the temporal uh, area. Now, what's wrong, Patrick? He's got an aneurysm. Huh? He's got an aneurysm coming off the arch somewhere, maybe. Okay, that's your, that's that's your answer, guess. and yeah. you stick it to it? I'm sticking to it. Okay, Mike? <laughs> mm, this, this is a good one. Um, the best answer, I mean. poorly. I think uh, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. I think this guy would benefit from a different size cannulas. Oh, clearly. You know, clearly. I, I, that would be my first thing I would do, but I'm not quite sure why he's doing as bad as he's doing. Clearly, yes. Okay. Yeah. Miss Kim? No idea. Okay. Miss <laughs> Sparacino? Well, I'm really puzzled because his PO2 is really high. Yes, it is. I'm puzzled too. Hmm. So let me just ask the question this way. Where was that PO2 drawn from? Oh, okay. Right. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Patrick? I guess I'm going to guess the circuit. No, Probably. it wasn't a circuit. It was an APO2. Okay. From arterial sheath. Well, okay, so going back to my thought, I mean, they probably got from, you know, from a, a radio. Yeah. Nope. It no? was drawn from, this is where the problem comes in. Oh. It was drawn from, that was the question I was but waiting for everybody to ask me. But if he did have an aneurysm, then yeah. if they did draw yeah. from the radio, you know, it could have been right. But right. this was drawn <laughs> from, from the contralateral femoral artery mm -hmm. from where the cannula, return cannula was. Mm -hmm. So how accurate do you think that APO2 was? That was essentially a circuit gas. Yes, it's a circuit gas yeah, from the patient. From the patient. Because you're basically right out of getting the cannula. It right out of the cannula. Exactly. You knew it? He knew it. You win the cup. <laughs> Clean one. So, real quickly, you know, we all know what the circulatory system looks like. The real problem here happened to be this Harlequin syndrome. So, we all know what it is. Your hyperdynamic LV. Lungs were absolutely not working at all. Mm -hmm. Patients' lungs were gone. 
So there was no oxygenating this patient with their lungs. You had zero uh, contribution from them. So we have these teeny little cannulas in the femoral artery flowing up with an LV that's just, this kid's native cardiac output, I'll bet you, was 16 liters. And his pressures were so high. As, mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So his we were perfusing so from probably infra-abdominal mm -hmm. to his legs Perfect. very nicely. Lovely, mm -hmm. beautiful. And that's why that gas, arterial gas, looks, the PO2 looks so good. The acidosis was horrible, but the PO2 was great. So finally convinced them to draw a blood gas from the right radial. And that's why the pulse sauce wasn't working because it was so low. And the PO2 was 26 coming out of the right radial. Well, we know the outcome was poor. I do remember this yeah. patient. You remember this patient? I remember this patient, mm -hmm. yes. So what could we have done otherwise? Well, there was clearly a thought that the patient needed circulatory support. And I can understand that. Despite having a hyperdynamic heart, they had that patient on massive amounts of pressors. Massive. To get a pressure of 120, I mean, it was massive. There was, they, were in, they were in just septic shock, complete cardiovascular, or at least vascular collapse, vasoplegia. Their heart was still beating really well, but they were 19 years old. You expect right. that. That's mm -hmm. the dilemma right there. But you could have done VVA, that would have been a good choice. Mm -hmm. You get the circulatory support, plus you get the oxygenation on the right side. Wouldn't have been perfect, but it would have been good, better than what we were doing. We could have cannulated the subclavian artery. We could have done, we could have done VVA. We could have tried that. Two venous drainage and one arterial would have given us a little more flow, but you need bigger cannulas to do that. I mean, there's a variety of things we could have done. We could have done VVAV. We could have put two circuits in and done VV and VA. Mm -hmm. We could have done anything other than what we did. Did we also uh, consider uh, central cannulation on this guy? Um, no, they didn't. Ne no, they never considered central cannulation, but they eventually decided to take him to the operating room and try to convert him to VV. Mm -hmm. Right. But right. We were not, that's not part of this lecture. Right. That's part of my nightmares. So, <laughs> so we don't lecture about my nightmares. Fortunately, I skipped that part. I, I know. I remember that. That, that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I've said it so many times, you know, that VA ECMO with peripheral cannulation for isolated pulmonary failure is absolutely... It's it's, it's, I don't know how else to say it. It's idiocy. It's, it's useless. Absolutely. Now, VAV, you know, look, you got, well, I want the circulatory support. I don't, I don't think he's going to get better just with oxygenation. We need circulatory support. Right. Fine. Right. Do VVVA or VAV or do, you've got to do something to, to recognize that if you're going to peripherally cannulate this patient, you have to do something to oxygenate because that syndrome of north-south, harlequin, dual yeah. circulation, whatever you want to call it, is very real. And you also have to be able to know your circuit and understand the just basic anatomy mm -hmm. that I'm drawing the blood gas from the contralateral femoral artery where this cannula is flowing four liters in, right. and my PO2 is 350, and you're like, look, it's fine. Mm -hmm. 
No, it's not. Mm -hmm. You've got to draw it from the right radial. Mm -hmm. That's your most, that's the most distal point from the, from the, from the heart that's feeding the head. So if your right radial, mm -hmm. whatever that is, that is what's in your brain. That, that's, that's the true measurement. That's the true measurement. Yeah. Exactly. So just one of those lessons. My lecture's kind of like, eh, think about it. Okay. Don't be this guy. I just said it. Never use VA ECMO with peripheral cangulation fem-fem for, for pure pulmonary failure when there is no LV dysfunction. But if there is LV dysfunction, I need to add to that slide, do something for the LV dysfunction, but don't just depend on peripheral fem-fem VA ECMO for pulmonary failure, if that's a problem, regardless of whether you have also LV dysfunction. You've got to treat both separately in some way. You can do it in combination, but you've got to treat both problems, not just one thinking you'll treat both. It's kind of the opposite of the case you did that won you the crystal heart, mm -hmm. which was a yeah. big honor, I think, mm -hmm. um, and we're proud of you for that. But in that case, single VV ECMO was the right thing to do. Because I mean, I, my first thought was, no, you need VA because you need the circulatory support. But you really didn't because mm -hmm. her LV dysfunction was because of her hypoxia. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this case, your LV is young and it's just beating, his heart's beaten like crazy. Mm -hmm. And his problem, although that was a problem, but the oxygenation problem compounded it, it con and, it, and, it, and it complicated matters that you have to treat both of them or you're fa you're going to be fa you're going to fail, right? So now another problem you get with peripheral VA cannulation is this: you can see that the intraventricular septum is severely displaced over mm -hmm. to the uh, left side. This is what it looks like when you put an impella in, which is now going to decompress the LV, mm -hmm. and you can see the impella coming in through the valve up there. Uh, let's see, right over there, right there, coming in, right down there. Mm -hmm. So that's decompressing the LV, and you see how the intraventricular septum has come back over to the midline where it needs to be. So that's always good. You got to worry about clot. You gotta worry about clotting off your LV. That's a problem too. So, but anyway, that's 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 the idea there. But there are other ways to to, to deal with this. Um, here's a really good talk, I think, or a good slide. VA ECMO with peripheral cannulation and LV wall stress. You can see with the uh, line right here that as you're on VA ECMO and you increase your flow. You see LV wall stress uh, going up significantly when you put either in the tandem heart or you put the Impella 5.0, you can see LV wall stress comes way down. So this is basically a, an empty decompressed LV, but if you don't have that and you have LV, just you, you, your LV is not pumping, you're gonna have some level of, uh, of aortic insufficiency and filling on the left side that's just gonna keep filling that heart until it gets very distended. And of course, when it gets distended, LV wall stress is high, you know, you don't get very good coronary circulation. So now you're taking a heart that's sick and you wanna recover it and you have it on VA ECMO and it's just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. It's not, we're not, we're helping 
the brain and the body, but we're really not doing much to really recover the heart. We're hurting them at that point. So you got to fix it, but you can do it different ways. You don't have to use an impella, though the impella I think is a good option as an LV vent. And in some cases, it's a good option, I think, for just circulatory support on its own merit. Though I think it's somewhat tricky. It's extremely expensive. It's kind of finicky in positioning. And uh, I'm not sure if it's really a good long-term option. I'm just not really sure. So now you can win a prize. Somebody here can win a prize, okay? Take a look at this picture. And I'm gonna just go through it with you, okay? Because I wanna be fair. Everyone knows what blue means, right? Blue means Venus. So this is an access line. It's coming down like this. And there's another access line right here. So this line and this line are wide together going to the inlet of the pump down there somewhere and then the return is this line going into that femoral artery and this line going into that femoral artery so it's a it's a multi-part it's a multi-part question Multi-part test, all right? Somebody's gonna win this prize, and I wanna give it to you, I really do. But it's a super secret, it's not a cup. Oh. It's a real prize. <laughs> this is a super secret prize, but it's a real prize. Anybody wants to call in, call in if you think you can answer these questions, all right? I mean, we're gonna, we wanna be fair to everybody. The question I have is, what do you notice odd about this line in particular, and I'll just give you, I'll make it easy for you, I'll give you a hint, that line right there. What do you notice that's strange about this line coming into and mixing with this line? It looks it's arterial. Oxygenated. Yeah, well, there's it looks arterial. VA and then the, you get an mm -hmm. artery and a mm -hmm. vein but, okay. mixing together. So where is, that's very good, excellent. So now the next question is, where is this line? This is in the femoral artery. That is in the femoral artery. This is in a femoral vein. And I'm giving you all the clues. There you go. So, I mean, I'm not even trying to hide anything from you. Where is it? Air. No, it's not in the air. Crickets. Dare. Dare. Dare? <laughs> What does that mean, dare? Which, which one are we answering? Uh, the, this line The right left here. leg or the right leg? This one right here. Okay. See my arrow? Where is that going out where of? It's is, out. No, where is it pulling? Where it's a Venus. is it? Where no, is not. it? It looks arterial. Yeah, but it is Venus. Okay. It's recirculation happening, okay. but mm -hmm. why? Uh, oh, so you gave the answer. So you think it's that. Okay. Is that your answer? Yeah. Okay, no prize for you. <sighs> Who else? <laughs> Anybody? Come on. You gotta get this. I, I, well, I don't. I don't have a good answer. I love I've this got, slide. I've got an answer, but it's not a good answer. Well, what is it? Here's, this is V A A A ECMO. <laughs> no, I just told. Never you. heard of it before. I just told you it's in a vein. I even mm -hmm. told you the thing's yeah, in a vein. She said recirculation. And what do you it think? Doesn't look like Mike? recirculation. It, it, it definitely is in the vein. I think what we're seeing there is here. You want the the uh, the, no, the, no. the thing, the arrow? One of them, one of them is, is the cannula that goes all the way up to the top. The other's in the in the small femoral. Okay, so you think these are both in femoral arteries? No, I think one's in femoral artery, one's femoral vein. But I think one, they. Uh, 
So you think this one isn't in as far as it's advanced as, okay. too far? That one is advanced it's, way up to the top to the yeah, heart. It's advanced. This too one's far. advanced all the way up to the heart. Yeah. Okay. I think. Okay. You had a different idea. No price for you either. <laughs> oh, man, last chance. <laughs> last chance. All right, come on. You got to get this. Somebody. It's Katie. A, oh. Come on. <laughs> oh. Uh, Somebody can win a prize. You want to call it in? It's a tough question. Joe. It's a tough question. <laughs> a tough it is. Question. It's a tough one. Mm. I told you it was advanced too far. Well, I, I know it was up too far, but That's I didn't a, know it went through, <laughs> through that. Really so, went through so instead of using an impella okay. to decompress the left <laughs> side, you put a line up through the vein, go transeptal from the right atrium to the left atrium, and now you can decompress think, the left side. Do people do that? Yes, people do. <laughs> you see the drawing, don't how do they, you? How do they make the hole in the atrium? You do a septostomy. You use a needle or mm -hmm. you use, uh, mm -hmm. there's another device out there. Huh? Percutaneously? Yeah, you puncture a needle wow. through it. Okay. Yeah, All right. percutaneously. And there's a, uh, there's a device that uses um, RF, radio frequency waves, to actually cut through. So a lot of times when they do these needle punctures, because transeptal, you know, transeptal approaches for things is common. Yeah. They do it all the time in the EP lab. But when they use a needle and push through, sometimes it will tear the septum. You'll get a you'll get a tear. It's hard to close that then percutaneously or with like a, 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 a atrial sept an atrial uh, septal defect closure device. Yeah. And um, so they use this other device, and I can't remember who makes it now, but it goes up, and they use RF waves, and they puncture through with that, and then they're able to go in and dilate it and put a catheter through. Mm -hmm. And then you hook the catheter up to your venous, and you have a left atrial mm -hmm. drain, so you decompress mm -hmm. the left side while you're on ECMO. We had no chance of winning Poor man's impella. That's right. That That's about... Out. That's about a $60, $100, $120 device yeah. versus yeah, really? a thirty-five or twenty-eight yeah. or $35,000 device. Right. So you got to think about that. And of course, we all know what the cold foot looks like. And that's, we saw the side port on that right there, you know, sitting there right here and mm -hmm. then going into the SFA and, you know, feeding the foot. So cold foot and, and then you can make it a little, look a little bit, little bit better. So there's some of our resources that I'd like to see you take advantage of that we have. Of course, NurseWeb is coming up pretty soon. Um, we're also going to have ECMO training um, and uh, for ECMO specialists with nurse ECMO specialists, respiratory therapy ECMO specialists, um, perfusionists who may want to also attend this class. It's going to be uh, approved for Category 1 CEU, CNE, and also Oh, whatever I guess the iteration is for uh, respiratory. You want to talk about that a little bit? Talk about our ECMO course and you kind of where we are did. with that? Well, you can <laughs> elaborate on it. Um, so you're the education director. Yes, so you're director I'm the education, of education. director yeah. of education. So we are developing um, a course that goes through all of the curriculum recommended by ELSO. Um, and so we're looking forward to 
starting mm -hmm. up and getting rolling. So we're going to get it. The CNE is going to be coming from TNA. Is that right? Yes, from the Texas Nurses Association. Very good. So yep. be looking for it online. We'll yep. send some notifications yep. out and that kind of thing. Mike, you're going to be yes. one of our instructors. Absolutely. Patrick, I think you want to. You yep. signed up to also be a Tammy. Yep. I signed you up to be one of our instructors. <laughs> Thank of course, you, guys. Katie's. I am too. She yeah. signed me up too. Katie, yeah, of course, is the director and she gives some lectures. Yep. So uh, that and with that, thank you. And any questions? <laughs> So uh, we could just go to questions and see if anybody has any questions for me on my talk. It's just amazing how many different ways you can hook things up. <laughs> and I think yeah, that's true. It really is. I mean, there's a lot of different accesses, and, and uh, you just got to find the one that, that really works the best to provide what you need. Yeah. And the thing about it is that uh, there's been uh, quite a few times that uh, we've done VA to start with, but as the heart comes back, we realize now VV is the more appropriate and mm -hmm. you make those switches based upon what your patient needs. Right. And because uh, for one part of it, it serves its function, provides the care it needed at that point. Now you're on, as you mentioned earlier, you're now on to something else. Mm -hmm. You've got to treat what the patient needs. Correct. And so get the appropriate circuit for the appropriate patient requirement. Well, I think that goes back to really understanding what you are providing. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't understand what you're providing and what the patient right. needs you to provide, you can end up doing more harm than good. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. I think that's it. I think that really understanding the circuit. Mm -hmm. You know, look, mm -hmm. I mean, we're perfusionists, right? But, I mean, I know guys, you know, I think you do too, who are great. I mean, they're really good perfusionists. They've been around for a long time. But they really don't understand ECMO because they never did. They didn't do it. They do some great perfusion cases. They're really good perfusionists. Mm -hmm. But ECMO is such a different thing. Mm -hmm. And you really have to understand what the circuit's doing. Right. You well, know, it's not like central cannulation, heart, lung machine, on bypass. You know, we got that. It gets a little different when you got these cannulas stuck in these different mm -hmm. places. And what are they really doing? Right. right. Well, and it, I think it is more a big picture too for the people caring for the patient in the ICU. It's not mm -hmm. just perfusionists, you really need to understand it. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of hospitals are offering ECMO now because it's the thing to do and it's going to be easy, but if you don't have intensivist and, you know, a hematologist and infection control and all these different people. Cardiology, pulmonology. Right. But I think too, you know, and, and, and we may be getting off topic, I hope you don't mind, but the thing is, you need a team. Mm -hmm. You got to have a team, An and ECMO the team has to team. be cohesive. Right. Number one, and number two, you have to have a physician. So somebody who has clout, mm -hmm. some power that can say, "This is what I want." Who is the director of the program? Yeah. That you know, the pulmonologist, the intensivist, can the cardiologist, whomever it is, can manage the patient. And it could be one of those people is the medical director of the ECMO program at any hospital. Mm -hmm. And they have, they should have absolute power to be able to say, got to stop. This is not, mm -hmm. this yeah. is no longer the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we got to call the family and that's it. Because too many, too many times that happens where it languishes and goes on and on mm -hmm. and on. Mm -hmm. And you're torturing people. But then on the other hand, there's people who don't want to put the patient on ECMO and they're getting referred for it. And this person based on their experience and understanding of ECMO is saying, what are you waiting for? 
put the patient on ECMO. Mm -hmm. You have, and how is the protocols going to be done? Look, we treat it with we treat with albumin. This is what we do. This is our protocol. Because mm -hmm. you get this new physician comes in. Oh no, albumin's really bad, and we know it's not. And then we have to go through that whole process again of having a difficult run with no volume, watching the patient blow up like a like Jabba the Hutt, and you're just, you know, or Michelin Man or whomever, whatever, and you're frustrated because now you've got somebody else wanting to do it their way. You have to have a system and a protocol, and people need to follow it if you want to have a successful program. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not just a bunch of Sesame Street kids and everybody does things their own way. Right, depending on work. who's on shift. Right. right, and then you have that problem, shift right. changes and weekends and whatever it may mm -hmm. be. So you need you need to have a, a strong, you have to have a strong leader. You that, have, I really believe you have that. to have a structured committee with someone in charge yes. who is able to make those decisions yes. and who also this team needs to come together and write protocols that are followed as a standard. Yes. And, and of then course, when you get curveball patients, right. you're like, well, well, you know, in this case, you know, but let's discuss that. Let's right. just, mm -hmm. you know, this is not a, uh, uh, this is not a dictatorship with new dictators every 12 hours. Right, right. right. Therein right. lies the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, right. So every time the, the, the 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 new dictator shows up they want it their way mm -hmm. and it's not what they were what we were doing and there's no continuity I guess would well, be the word you think looking for no one feels responsible too if you're in a situation where the patient is not improving is not going to improve no one wants the responsibility of saying this is the end because there's no structure to who's supposed to make those decisions right, mm -hmm. right. or this patient needs to get shipped out Right. Start the process. Mm -hmm. What does this patient, this patient is going to need a transplant. This patient is going to need a long-term device. This heart will never come back. Mm -hmm. right. This We can only provide this patient this much. If it's, this is just a waiting game, we have everything this patient needs, mm -hmm. and we can mm -hmm. treat this patient effectively, keep the patient. Right. But when right. you don't have the services right. Right. to give them what they need, stabilize them, and get them someplace else. That's the most frustrating is because you've now decided to keep a patient maybe long term or maybe just a few days because you haven't figured out that they need to go ahead and transfer and now you've really hurt that patient's chances of recovering mm -hmm. at a center that could have helped Potentially. Them. Yeah. By waiting, by delaying. By delaying. Right, by delaying. Mm -hmm. But so you have to you have to be able to get those, you know, what's the game plan? What is the what's the what is the what do you call it? You call it the what is it called? The the, the treatment plan. Treatment plan. Okay. Yeah. What's the treatment plan for this? But you're, you know, you're the nurse here, so you know. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I'm trying to. I'm sure. Trying to you're learn more nurse. nurse language. Oh, oh. Huh? You were speaking nurse. I was trying to speak. Yes. Yeah. Speaking. Nurse. Yeah. I'm doing one of those. I'm doing one of those. What's that? What's that called? Babel. I'm doing Babel. Nurse. Nurse. That Babel is a language. Babel nurse. nurse. Well, doing that thing. You know, where you can learn Spanish or it used to be called something else. What's that thing? Even Google has it now. The Google Translator. You can pick English to nurse. Duolingo. <laughs> I'm going to have to yeah. look yeah. that. Yeah. It is there. It's there. It's on the Googles. Yeah. On the Googles? On the Googles. All right. Well, I, I, well, I can't wait. think of anything else. I think that that last question with the transeptal, you know, uh, cannula mm -hmm. was unfair. <laughs> we had no chance. File the protest. <laughs> I File do want to know something about that. Why was there a distal perfusion catheter in only one leg? Not the other. 
in that patient? In that patient. Like, because don't they put them in when they initially insert the cannulas? Or yes. No, they actually had two. They had two arterial cannulas. Mm -hmm. So that right. patient was on veno v left atrial arterial arterial. Yes. She's saying, why but do why you have to recirculate the leg that has the we vent and the arterial access? Right, the left oh, leg the had... leg wasn't cold. Yeah. Might have been bigger vessels mm. put up higher, uh. you know? If the toes ain't black and it ain't cold, you're not going to put that SFA line in unless you have to. But do they not put that in on some, an... Some places do. Some places do like, it as a standard of care in the beginning. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah. some just, do. Yeah. But usually they just wait to see it's if the like, foot's going to be cold. It's like, why put it in one side and not the other? Yeah. No pulses on one side and pulses, pulses on, on the, the other. other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. So, you know, or, or flow by Doppler or whatever. Mm -hmm. The foot's warm, this foot's mm -hmm. cold. Yeah, I've seen it where both of them have the mm -hmm. SFA line, the distal perfusion catheter mm -hmm. in. I've seen it that way, too. But I've seen it where there's been none. I've seen it where there's been one, one side or the yeah. other, or both. I as mean, far as vasculature depends. is concerned, symmetry is not an absolute term. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely okay. true. One, right, one femoral iliac system might be, you know, so five, better. six millimeters bigger than uh, bigger. another one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's possible. Okay, well, know. I think we had a really good time. Mm -hmm. I did. And despite. I want to thank, despite multiple, yeah, multiple. <laughs> so. <laughs> And uh, hopefully won't have them tomorrow. So tomorrow, what are we talking about tomorrow? Somebody can somebody bring that up. There it is. So tomorrow we're gonna. Oh, Katie Kim, advanced hemodynamic monitoring, and Tammy Sparacino, non-invasive cardiac output devices. I think it got mentioned today, right, mm -hmm. in, in Roger's talk. Mm -hmm. And then a, uh, a lively discussion. And it looks like we've got Kimberly Sperlin wants to come up here. So uh, it should be Kimberly, Tammy, Kim, uh, 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 Katie, Katie, Katie. And, uh, and me. Unless either of you want to come. You're welcome, of course, to come anytime you want. No, no, no need to commit. If you want to, it's the, the offer's there. I may, may be getting ready to watch an ECMO. What? Uh. <laughs> we, Are you serious? We have a very difficult patient tomorrow at a oh, hospital okay. that's got a fairly high chance of going on VA ECMO. Very good. Our weekend's looking up. <laughs> and Take if anybody would like to come and work some ECMO shifts. Oh, yeah, we can talk about <laughs> that. We're hiring. HET is hiring. So any perfusionists out there looking for get Roger you know, back on Roger Roger <laughs> or yeah I'm gonna call him later yeah I'm, I'm, we're gonna get him down here because that dude that guy would be a real oh, let me a, tell you what that would be Roger, an addition Roger's to this a great team. Guy. no question no, about no. it okay well thank you all very much good evening we'll see you tomorrow we hope and then on Saturday but tomorrow we'll have another great time and uh, we appreciate your patience today and all of that mm, I'm out peace out. All right.